thank you for great worship. I love hearing you sing, and uh, very thankful for all involved this morning. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Caroline read from the book of Joel, and the words that she read were quoted by Peter in Acts chapter 2 when uh, the flaming tongues descended from heaven and landed upon the apostles and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit occurred. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about the nature of a true gospel church. Last Sunday, my family said that I was a little vague. Uh, I was talking about how there's a church plant in Honesdale where the justification for starting was that there were no spirit-filled churches in Wayne County, and I thought I maybe should be a little bit more clear. My, my uh, kids definitely thought I should be a little bit more clear. Uh, just as a way of background, uh, once a month I meet with uh, pastors in the community. We uh, typically meet at a coffee shop, or, and we talk about uh, topics that are of relevance to uh, small-town pastors, and uh, we just have a good time together. And one of the pastors uh, asked me if, whether I had seen a promotional video that was floating around Facebook um, or not, and he summarized, as I described it, as that the church was starting because there was no other uh, spirit-filled churches. And actually, the church plant is more like a replant. Uh, there's a large church in the valley that's sending uh, some of the church that's driving there to, to stay here locally in Wayne, Wayne County. And uh, the term spirit-filled tends to have a charismatic flavor to it. So, I wanted you to be clear in understanding what I meant by that. And so, they have a vision of what a true gospel church looks like. And uh, this morning, we're going to spend some time thinking about Paul's vision, or excuse me, Peter's description, and the book of Luke's description of what a true gospel church looks like. And uh, hopefully, we will, at the time of conclusion of the sermon, we'll have a better sense that a true gospel church is one that's comprised of spiritual people. It's comprised of spiritual people. And uh, we're going to be thinking about the character of the first church, and I hope to be able to show you a little bit of a grid by which we can evaluate our own congregation and how we think about church in general. So, here we are in Acts 2, widely understood to be the birth of the church. You know, the disciples were told to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit to come upon them, what we would also describe as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that occurred in Acts uh, chapter 2. Uh, You see in the first few verses, uh, the rush of the wind and the Spirit descending, and and, uh, there was quite a a variety of people observing this event and were unsure of what they were seeing. In fact, uh, at the time that uh, this occurred, there were people from all over the Mediterranean world, from many different nations that were assembled, And they got to hear Peter preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and many of those people from all over the world responded to the message about Jesus Christ. And uh, what I want us to do, I want us to look at 
uh, chapter 2, verse 21, the last verse of the passage that was quoted from Joel. And here, Peter is communicating to the people what they observed through the tongues coming down, the fire, and people not being consumed, but they're able to speak in foreign languages. And he describes the events in Joel and says, look, this is the time that Joel spoke about in which the Spirit would be poured out. But I want us to notice verse 21. And he concludes this quotation. He says, And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is a fresh and unprecedented movement of the Holy Spirit that occurred in this moment. Um, Typically, the Holy Spirit would come upon people for short periods of time. Kings, prophets would be vehicles of communication from God. But this was unique. This was a, a democratic, if you will, offer of the Spirit to all people who call upon the name of the Lord. This was not reserved, but this was a, a, a universal opportunity for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And this also um, is an abiding presence that's unique. Uh, the Spirit came down and descended and did not leave Peter, did not leave the apostles, did not leave those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so, there is a uniqueness to what's happening here, creating a congregation of genuinely Spirit-filled uh, people. And so, this morning, what we're going to do is mainly look at verse 21 to the end of the chapter. And I want us to listen to Peter's message, and I also want us to observe the kinds of things that the church was doing. And so, I basically have two points this morning. The first is is that a true church is comprised of whoever repents and believes the gospel. A true church is comprised of whoever repents and believes the gospel. Secondly, A church, a true spiritual church, are those who continue to be shaped by the assembly, by the church itself. And so, let's look and observe the message of Peter and the response. And I think before we do so, I'd like to to pray. Heavenly Father, we're looking into Your Word And I ask that we would see you. I ask that we would be deeply moved by the truths that are in this text. Help us to be uh, responsive to what we hear. And may we follow you with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and all of our spirit as the children sang. May we be motivated to live for you, to be devoted to you as your people were in the first century. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, a true church, a true church is comprised of whoever repents and believes 
the gospel. First, for people to repent and respond and believe the gospel, they must hear the true gospel. They must hear it. I'm going to read verses 14, excuse me, verse 22 through 36. And notice that in verse 22, Peter addresses and he asks them to hear, to listen. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. These words describe the gospel. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of what we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he says of him, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Peter begins by requesting the people to hear, to give audience, to listen to the words of the gospel. Back in verse 14, uh, Peter said, before he quoted Joel, he said, standing with the eleven, he lifted up his voice and he addressed them and he said, men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And as I observed this this week, I noticed that that. Peter was wanting to make certain that they had an accurate hearing of the truths of the gospel. People have to hear the true gospel. The world that we live in is hearing all kinds of things, and we need to be able to articulate the gospel to them so they actually hear it, not just get it filtered through all the other things that are going on in their world. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 14, maybe a familiar passage to some of us, which says, how will they call upon him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? 
I don't know if you realize or not, but when we boldly proclaim the events of Calvary to people, what we are doing is we're, we're preaching, we're declaring the gospel. And for sake of time, I, I really can't develop the whole aspect of his gospel presentation uh, this morning, but I, I want to draw your attention to a couple of things. First, as Peter declares the gospel, what he's doing is he's, he's adapting kind of what we've discussed in Sunday school last week. We described a good gospel presentation, talking about God, talking about man, and how that we're sinners, and that we need to respond. Peter is essentially preaching the same kind of gospel outline, but he's adapting it. Everyone there at Pentecost had an awareness of who God was. They didn't have to be convinced that God was the God of creation, that God was a God of justice and holiness. And so he's, he's looking at his audience and seeing that they have an understanding of who God is. They understand they're sinners, but what they don't understand is that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the Messiah, the one for whom they have had their hope and expectation for and have never been able to see with their eyes or hear with their ears. And so now he's proclaiming Jesus to be the Son of God who rose with power and is sitting at the right hand of God and ruling with power. I think it's important for us to understand too that as Peter presents this to them, he also doesn't shy away from the fact of their complicity in the killing of the Son of God. People already often know that they're sinners. But what many of us don't realize and we don't own is that our very sin makes us complicit in the death of Jesus Christ. It makes us complicit and culpable of our own punishment and rightful place in the absence of God, in the eternity of hell. We're all sinners, we're criminal, and we need someone who will provide a pardon for us. We need our sins to be forgiven. And so Peter's declaring this to his audience. He understands, he adapts. And I think it's essential for us to realize that when we share the gospel to have a hearing, we have to also listen and evaluate where people are. Not everyone has a concept of who this God is that we worship, and we have to show them that He is the God of creation, the God who made everything. He's not just a grandfather who sweeps up the, the things and shuffles our sins underneath of the rug. He, he, he has a plan to carry out justice on this world. And if we don't respond to the gracious offer He provides, then we too will be punished. And so, what we have to do is we've got to communicate. People know that they're sinners, but they don't always see with open ears and eyes their personal responsibility before a holy God. And we have to share that with people. That's hard. That's difficult. It's not, it's not pleasant. It actually can create people who look at us with, with frowns. It can cause people to overlook us for promotions in our workplace. It can cause us to actually um, not have friends in our schools. 
But we have to speak like Peter to his own people. He's speaking to Israelites. We have to talk to Americans who think that they're okay. And we also have to do what Peter did and tell them that we are all not okay. We are all criminal and we all need a pardon. And so in describing the gospel, we also have to remember that we we then share the good news, that we can repent of our sins. But I think as we share the gospel, we have to know, and I think this can be a source of comfort to us as we share the gospel, is that those who listen, if God is working in their heart, they're being enabled to respond. That's not something that we can do. That's something that God does, and those who hear the true gospel will be enabled, they have to be enabled by the Spirit to believe. In verse 37, we observe some of this happening. Verse 37, he says, uh, the, the, uh, Luke, who's writing this account, says, now when they heard this, that is the gospel message, and they realized their sin and culpability, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? That moment of cutting to the heart is not our responsibility. It is the Holy Spirit who will be doing that in the presentation of the gospel. Uh, Romans chapter 10, verses 16 to 17 says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah said, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. But where does hearing come from? Hearing comes through the word of Christ. As the gospel is being presented to people, The Spirit of God, the Word of God, the Christ of the gospel is speaking to people. He's giving people ears to hear and and, uh, eyes to see. And in this instance, the Spirit of God cut them to the heart. They were enabled, and that's the role of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 8, it says, When the Holy Spirit comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And so, this is a work of God that happens. In our study this week, we'll be looking at Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, which says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the Spirit has to do a work of an enabling within our hearts to to soften us, to receive, and to respond with faith to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 37, we're reading that they were cut to the heart. They were troubled. They were deeply affected by the message. And they do not pass on they stop and they, they plead with, with Peter and, and to the other apostles and say, well, what are we to do about this? And Peter presents to them, he has already presented to them, God, man, a Savior, and now a need to respond 
to the gospel. Verse 38 to 40, let's read what, what he says. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort to them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. What, Paul, what Peter is describing here is a total personal reliance upon Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, repentance means turning away from a reliance upon yourself. It is a reliance completely that you can find forgiveness because Jesus bore your sin. He, he went to the cross. He was buried so that you don't have to be. You can be like Christ. You can resurrect from the dead. If you put your faith and trust in him, you will have your sins forgiven. And really what saving faith, when it occurs, it occurs when a person is brought underneath of the conviction of their sin and they're persuaded that Christ is their only hope for life and death. And as they look at Christ, they personally, willingly, volitionally choose to embrace Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. So, as Peter's preaching, he's pleading. He's asking them to respond. And the Holy Spirit is doing a work here, and this is the first instance in which there is mass conversion from all of the nations that are represented, and a church is formed out of response to the gospel, the work of the Spirit. And I want you to notice, too, something that happens here, and actually what is, what is actually the, you know, what constitutes a, a spiritual church. Because a true ch- spiritual church is, it's comprised of whoever repents and believes the gospel. Notice the response didn't just stop there. They identified with Christ's body and became active members of that body. That is what a true spiritual church looks like. If you look at verse 41, notice that, so those who received Peter's word, the gospel, they were then baptized, and then they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That word added is repeated again in verse 47. At the end, the very last line, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And so it's, I think, important for us to realize that a true spiritual church is normally, uh, it's normal for people who respond to identify with Christ's body as a member. See, those who repented and believed the gospel, they joined in. On day one, there were about 3,000 souls, 
And in verse 47, there was an additional addition to that previous number. Why would I stop and make this important point? If you were with us last week, or if I know we had another weather issue last week, but I would encourage you to listen to the message from last week because in it, I opened up to you from 1 Peter the significance of what the church is, that we are sojourners, but we are also saints. We have our feet, if it were, or our our foot is in both worlds. And so what this means is that what we do here as a body locally matters. And the primary reason that we observe a text like this and, and follow the implication of practice of church membership and, and baptism is that not everyone who professes the name of Christ are in fact Christians. And not everyone who attends a worship service are genuinely Christian. And identification with the body of Christ says, this is my testimony of statement that I am not only a sojourner, but my place is also before the throne of God in heaven. I am in both places here at one time. This is my testimony of faith. And so, it's important to observe that the early church united with one another. They, they were baptized, they identified, and they showed themselves to the world that they were members of God's true church. I think that as we move along here, it's important for us to see that this tying into the body continued to be a source of strength and shaping for them in their spiritual walk. Um, and I want us to see verse 42 to 47, how that a true church is comprised of people who continue to be shaped through the body or through the church. Verse 42 to 47, I will, I'll read the verses, and then we're going to take a moment just to observe some of the, the patterns of activity that occur in the body. Verse 42 says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and of prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We need to know that there are many preaching centers who are only concerned about creating conversions. Now, that's not a wrong thing, and we naturally would say, praise God that people are being saved, and I do say, praise God that people are being saved. 
We actually need ministries and organizations that proclaim the gospel to the masses. We need those in connection with local congregations. And they design their ministries to evangelize the lost. However, we also need what we might call parachurch ministries to move those who respond to the gospel, who make a profession of faith to the churches to create the continuing forming, um, uh, the forming shape, shaper of their lives. Because a true gospel church is one that continues to shape one another as we fellowship around Christ. Now, what shape will a church create? Will it be like a pew shape? Shape? Do we, do we all come in and get into a little sardine can thing and we're all shaped the same way? No. But what a church does, it's God's gift for you to allow Christ to be formed in you. Paul talked about this in Galatians chapter 4. He was like an, like an, anxious, uh, like an anxious person, anxious that Christ would be birthed properly in them, shaped and formed. And every member who gathers as members will be shaped by four means of grace that I see in this text. These are God's gifts to you as a sojourner and a saint. The first is we find our shaping through the Word of God. These are fairly simple I don't think I'm going to tell you anything you haven't ever heard before, but sometimes we need to be reminded. We are shaped by the Word. Notice that they devoted themselves, in verse 42, to the apostles' teachings. Now, the apostles' teachings was the received instruction that they had been given by Jesus Christ Himself. Uh, They also took the Old Testament and taught from it to say, look, this points to Christ as being the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of Israel, and now you Gentiles. This is how you're now to live according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so we have the completed books of the Bible. We have the letters that describe some of their teachings. And so we have inherited the, the, the Word of God, the um, teachings of the apostles, God's Word, I think we need to be reminded, has always been His chosen instrument to create, to convict, to convert, and to conform His people to His will. You think about the very first words of of the Bible that we have recorded in which God said, let there be light. When He spoke those words, instantly light was in this universe. You think about uh, the call of Abraham. He called him out of Ur the Chaldees, and Abraham responded and followed. That was a shaping influence in his life. We have the Ten Commandments that shape our steps. We have um, pictures in the Old Testament of the words being spoken to a valley of dry bones and then all of those dry bones coming up and being enfleshed and becoming whole again. That was a word picture to describe the power of God's Word. Think of what Jesus in uh, the wilderness 
when he was being tempted by Satan, what did he say to him? What did he say to Satan? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That is our life. In Peter, 1 Peter 1, Peter also said this regarding the word of God. And that's what Peter did. He, he preached the word to the people, and people were coming to life in response. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1, verse 23 and 25, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. And this is the word which was preached to you. You see, God's word has supernatural power to accomplish the thing for which it was sent. That is the Spirit with the Word, empowering the Word, creating with the Word. And so when we respond to the teaching and the hearing and the reading of the Word of God, we are being shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. I want us to notice here in this text that the church as they assembled recognized the value of their own shaping by the gathering. The gathering itself of the coming together was a shaping influence in their life. Um, Notice in Luke 2, verse 42, um, they were devoting themselves not just to the apostles' teaching, it was also to the fellowship and the breaking of bread and of prayers and, and as you go on, you'll see other examples of this and, and that they were together and, and they had all of, all things in common and the gathering together was shaping them to become conscious of other people. And, and day by day, they attended the temple together and they were in their homes and the gathering was a shaping means of grace in that early church's life. <coughs> You know, we are created in the image of God. And we should not be surprised that we would enjoy fellowship the way that God enjoys fellowship. In our Ephesians study, we're noticing that Paul describes the relationship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as a community of of beings that are triune and one. And God purposed to bring us into that relationship, that intimate relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit is sent to us to produce a a love for one another just as such as exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So that we would enjoy one another, we would sacrifice for one another, that we would pray for God's best for one another, and that we would fight with one another. Wait, sorry, how did that get in there? Well, actually... If we do have disagreements, we'll have the opportunity to forgive one another and forbear with one another. 
Did you realize that one another's cannot be carried out if we isolate ourselves from one another? We must regularly gather and make meaningful points of contact with one another so that we can be shaped by the body of Christ. The culture of a church is made by the loving touches that are reciprocated, increased through the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> pray for me and also pray for Dave Mashura. I think I got him sick at our elders' meeting. <clears throat> I'm on medication now, so I have for bronchitis. But you can be in prayer for me and for one another in that example. But we are shaped by the word. We're shaped by the gathering. But we are also shaped by the ordinances themselves, provided that we, we carry the ordinances out with which they were intended. Notice um, a double repetition of the breaking of bread. The breaking of bread in verse 42, last part, and then also in 46. That is a... a, a kind of like the early first century way of talking about the Lord's Supper and how that that had a shaping role in their lives. In fact, uh, I'm going to talk about this a little more in subsequent weeks, so I won't belabor it here. But baptism is one of those ordinances that, if done properly, guards the front door of the congregation, and the Lord's table is actually designed to be the back door. So that when we, we enter into relationship with a congregation through the waters of baptism, publicly testifying to the world that we have been born again, and the Lord's table as a, 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 as a memorial becomes a, a statement to the world that we're working towards the unity of this body of Christ. And that we're not allowing sin to dwell and grow within us. We're fighting for the sake of the unity of this body. And so, it's important for us to see these as being important parts of the gathering of the church and the shaping nature for which they're intended. The last means of grace here in this text that I'd like to show us is that we are not only shaped by these others, but we're shaped by the reverent and joyful worship together. Verse 43, uh, 46 and 47, it says, An awe came upon every soul. That's where I see reverence. And they received their food with gladness and generous hearts. The, the gladness, the, you see the joy there, and there's the generosity in play. And praising God. And they were having favor with all the people. And I see then these little words of praising God and awe. I see a, a reverent and joyful heart expression. Worship has a shaping effect upon us. But worship utterly fails if Jesus Christ is not the center of that worship. And real reverence for our holy God is never stodgy. It's never dull. When we see Christ for who he is and the glory of the resurrection, our hearts can't but be moved with joy and anticipation. As God's people now, 
we can be shaped by reverent and joyful worship. And it will only happen when, unless Jesus Christ is at the center. So as I looked at these, these examples, I see, I see the church being formed by the gathering of themselves, the hearing of the word, the ordinances, the, the worship together. But these are all responses that come from a person who has been born again. Someone who has heard the word of God, the Spirit has enabled them, and they're responding on their own free will. They're disp- responding because they love what they hear now. They're not anxious. Their hearts are open to hear and receive it. This is all a part of God's people. This is what constitutes a true spiritual people, a true gospel church. This morning, maybe indirectly, I have preached the gospel. And in reflection, I want to ask, were any of you here cut to the heart as you heard that you had a hand in Jesus' crucifixion, his death, and his burial. If that's true of you, and today if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Respond to the truth of Jesus Christ. You can be forgiven of your sin You can have a vital relationship with God, the one who created you. I would encourage you to, from your heart even now, call out upon his name. It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is a promise for you if you're hearing the gospel now. Maybe, maybe you're here, and maybe you've already responded to Christ, but you've never followed through with baptism. You've never responded to, do, to participate fully in the life of a congregation through church membership. If you are truly a saint, and you're a sojourner, you need to give other people the permission to do the one another's in your life. Even the hard ones that sometimes people kind of recoil and say, maybe this is why I don't want to be a part of a church because someone's showing me that I need to do something different in my life. That's God's grace to you. And in this message, I would encourage you to examine your heart and I would encourage you by the grace that you will receive in your response Jesus will not turn any of you away. I'd encourage you to take your next step of following Christ. I close with these words from a hymn that we do sing from time to time. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is His new creation by spirit and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life he died.